Good afternoon. My name is Karen Sampson Hoffman. Today we are welcoming Dr. Thomas E. Brown of the Department of Psychiatry at Yale University School of Medicine, presenting Emotions and Motivation in ADHD. Dr. Brown is a clinical psychologist who received his PhD from Yale University and maintains a private practice in Hamden, Connecticut, specializing in assessment and treatment of high IQ children, adolescents, and adults with ADHD and related problems. He is an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at the Yale University School of Medicine and is associate director of the Yale Clinic for Attention and Related Disorders. Again, we are very pleased to welcome today's ox- expert, Dr. Thomas Brown. Dr. Brown, if you are ready to begin. I'm ready, Karen. Thank you very much, and uh, thank you to all of you who've tuned in. Uh, I'd like to talk with you today about something I've been working on for the last few years uh, and uh, believe that it's something, an aspect of ADHD that we all need to pay a little more attention to. If you look at the diagnostic criteria for ADHD that are usually used to make decisions about uh, who has ADD and who doesn't, and I'll use the terms ADD and ADHD interchangeably in this conversation, uh, what you find is there's nothing in there about emotions. Uh, there are comments about forgetfulness, there are comments about being able to pay attention to various things, but there's, not much, there's, there's no explicit mention at all about uh, emotions as any part of the problem that people with ADD face. Uh, and yet, one of the things that, which has really emerged uh, as we've studied more about how the brain operates and uh, for everybody and specifically about how things work for p- people with ADHD, whether you're talking about kids or adults, is that often emotions seem to get in the way. And what I'd like to, to talk about today is the role that emotions play in ADHD that I think is not adequately recognized. And let me say that, that I'm interested not simply in negative emotions. Uh, we'll talk more about that in just a little bit, but I'm, I'm not just talking about people getting irritable or frustrated uh, very easily, although those are certainly issues that a lot of folks with ADHD deal with. I'm also interested in, in what I think is a bigger problem for many with ADHD, at least the people that I know and see, uh, and that is the positive feelings uh, that a lot of times people think about uh, emotions as though uh, it only applies to somebody getting annoyed with somebody else or uh, and sort of neglect the fact that one of the most important emotions is interest. And any of you who, in your own experience directly or in dealing with uh, members of your family or friends or employees who have ADHD, you know very well that one of the things that people are concerned about is that often it's hard for them to get interested uh, or to sustain interest in some things that they know they ought to be interested in, but they're just not quite able to muster that interest. And so if you think about it, even though the term emotions is not included in the description of the problems associated with ADHD, if you start thinking about these various problems that we do hear about, you'll find that emotions play a big role in each of them. For example, prioritizing and getting started on tasks. The things that we get involved in and actually think of as important are very much tied to what we're interested in or what there is we may be interested in it just because it has a special interest value for us or we might be interested in it because we're afraid if we don't take care of this right now, something very unpleasant is going to happen. But prioritizing our tasks, what's important to us? 
and are being able to get started on tasks and set aside one thing in order to be able to get to something else uh, has a lot of emotion involved in it. Understanding uh, the ability of a person to sustain their interest in a task. How often do you hear from a child or an adult who has ADHD, I'm bored. This is so boring. Whether they're talking about getting their homework done or uh, filling out forms they have to fill out at work uh, or a lot of other activities that, that they may need to be engaged in, uh, often they have a hard time in being able to sustain their interest and uh, or find themselves starting with one thing and then drifting off and, and getting involved in something else instead. You think about memory. Which things do we remember? Which things do we hold in mind? Which things pop into our head? Things that we're more interested in. Things that worry us. Things that we feel guilty about. Things that have disappointed us. You know, and these Various tasks all are undergirded by the brain's operations with emotion. Now, let me emphasize here that when we're talking about emotions, at least what I'm talking about with it here today, I'm not talking only about conscious feelings, things where you can say, well, I feel annoyed about this, or, oh, I feel so sad about this, or I'm really worried about this. I'm talking also about those feelings that get to us underneath where we're not even aware of it, but you can sort of see by the way we react to things as we watch ourselves and others watch us, uh, that it's getting to us, either because we're really interested or scared of it or hurt by it or disappointed by it and so forth. You can read that off a person's facial expressions. You can read it in their tone of voice. And these emotions that underlie our reactions to uh, various opportunities and tasks and situations we face, some are conscious and we're very much aware of them, and some we're not all that aware of, but we can certainly tell when we look back on what we were doing that there was a lot of emotion involved in that. And that's what underlies the decisions we make as to what we're going to engage in, what things we're going to take on, what things we're going to care about, and what things we're going to avoid and what situations we're going to stay out of. So next slide, please. Now, when we're talking about people with ADHD, one of the things that I think is important to recognize when we're talking about emotions is that the emotions that people with ADHD have are no different from the emotions that most everybody else has. You know, that same range of emotions of being able to be angry sometimes, seriously pissed off about something, or feeling very sorry about something and sad about it, or very embarrassed about things, or really proud of something, really interested in something, really feeling uneasy about something, really feeling worried about something. Those are emotions everybody has. Sometimes some people have way more of one than another, but we're not talking about some unique set of emotions that are experienced by people with ADD. Rather, what I'm talking about today is that those emotions that people with ADHD have that are just like the emotions everybody else has, often people with ADHD report they have a lot more difficulty in recognizing some of their emotions and being able to respond to their emotions in ways that uh, are going to work for them and in being able to manage their emotions. We all get pushed and pulled by our emotions in a variety of ways, that some of which we recognize, some we don't. But the fact is we're talking about a problem that 
is associated with all these other problems we have with ADHD. And what I would suggest is that the problems that, that occur with emotions with people with ADHD are very similar to the problems that people with ADHD face in a whole lot of other situations. Let me give you some examples about the kind of thing I'm thinking about. Next slide, please. One of the things that, uh, that I've learned about this in talking with a lot of patients uh, whom I've consulted with is that often emotions tend for the person with ADHD to gobble up all the space in their mind. Let me give you an example. I had a salesman one time who came to my office. And he said, you know, I was at the diner yesterday late afternoon having lunch. I was in a pretty good mood sitting there eating my sandwich, not many people around. Guy in the booth behind me got his sandwich, and he's chewing too loud. He's going chomp, chomp, chomp on everybody. He said there was something about that noise that was driving me nuts. It was as though a computer virus had gotten into my head and just gobbled up all the space, and that's all I could think about was that damn noise. I'm sitting there, and I see I've got my fist clenched, seriously thinking about getting up and smacking this guy in the mouth because he's chewing so obnoxiously loud. I didn't do it. I wouldn't get arrested. But if I'd been at home, I would have been yelling at somebody or I would have walked out of the room. He said, that was strange. Because after a few minutes, he's still making the same noise, and then I wasn't feeling that way anymore. And he says, stuff like that happens to me a lot. Where I'll be in a situation where there'll be some little frustration, the kind of thing that on a scale of frustration that goes from zero to ten, most people would say, oh, it's a zero or a one. At the most, maybe it's a two. Well, it means like it's a seven or an eight or a nine. And sometimes, he said, I'll make a big fuss about it. Other times I don't say anything, but I feel this surge of anger where I feel like punching somebody or breaking something. And usually it's over after a couple of minutes. But he said, it's not always that way. He said, the day before that, I was at the office. I'm walking down the hall, and around the corner comes a friend of mine who works in the other department that I don't get to see very often. And I hadn't seen him for a long time, so as we approached each other, I stopped. He was, he was walking along reading some papers as he was going along the hall. And when I got to the point where we met each other, I stopped and said, hey, what's up? How you doing? I thought we'd stop and chat for a minute. He looks up, says hi, puts his head down, goes right back to reading and walking down the hall. Now, he said most people would just take that and, and just blow it off and say, well, he's in a hurry. He's got to get to a meeting or something. We'll talk later. He said, not me. He said, that happened at lunchtime. I got nothing done for the rest of the day. I spent all afternoon thinking I'd do something to piss him off. Or maybe it had something to offend somebody in his department and they're all angry with me. Or maybe I'm just the kind of person nobody likes and nobody will tell me about it. I couldn't get it out of my head. Other people with ADD, it's not like that. But they'll get an idea in their head of something they want to do or something they want to get or something they want to buy. And all of a sudden that wish takes on such strong urgency the feeling is I've got to have it now. And it almost doesn't matter how expensive it is or how inconvenient it's going to be for them or for somebody else or whether they're using time and money now for this today that they know they need for something else tomorrow that's more important. There's just this relentless push. And they'll keep that up until they either get it or they hit a brick wall. But even if they get it, they're not that happy about it because usually by then they're off on something else they want to do. Other people with ADD, it's not like that. They don't get that kind of problem with emotion, but they do find that they worry a lot. Like one woman who was driving down the expressway, she was telling me about this experience. She said, I'm driving down the expressway, and I'm in the left lane. I've got the Jersey cement barrier on my left, and then there's an 18-wheeler truck on my right, and we're cruising along about 65 miles an hour. This truck starts pulling over a little bit toward, it didn't get into my lane, but over toward me. 
And I got to thinking about how big that truck was and how small my car was. And pretty soon I'm thinking to myself, what would happen if that truck didn't see me and pulled over and squished me against the Jersey barrier? And pretty soon I'm not just thinking about it, I'm running a very vivid movie in my head, imagining exactly what it would look like if that truck came over and smashed my car, crumpled the car, sharp pieces of metal are sticking into me, and I'm bleeding to death, the car's getting dragged along the Jersey barrier, the truck jackknifes, cars and trucks behind us are hitting us repeatedly. There's this massive traffic jam. It takes a long time to get the rescue squad in to cut me out of the car. By that time, I've bled to death, and I have to call my family and tell them I'm dead. And all this while, I'm trying to drive the car 65 miles an hour down the road. She says stuff like that happens to me all the time, where basically everything's going along okay, and I start thinking, what would happen if this happened, or what happened if that happened? And pretty soon, I'm not just thinking about I'm into it. Now, it's not like anybody with ADD has all this stuff. But many will have one or some combination of a couple of them. But what they have in common is that computer virus in the head thing. That the emotion, whether it's hurt feelings or pissed off over trivia or having that feeling I've got to have it now or worrying about what if this or what if that, those feelings, some people, one person specializes in one, the other person may specialize in one or two others, but those feelings just come in like the computer virus and gobble up all the space in their head. It's very hard for them then to be able to put it in perspective and to put it to the back of their mind and get on with whatever it is they've got to do. And what I'm suggesting to you is that I think that many people with ADD have a lot more trouble than most other people do in being able to manage and respond to those kinds of emotions. That It's not always the same for everybody. Different people, different emotions are more important to them. But that feeling of having that emotion come and gobble up all the space in one's head uh, is an experience that a lot of people with ADHD say, you know, uh, that's something that, that really is a problem for me. Next slide, please. And if we think about this as sort of flooding with the emotion, you ask yourself, okay, well, what's the problem with that? Well, let me give an example. Often in a situation where they're feeling frustrated, a lot of people with ADHD will talk about how they just feel so frustrated, so annoyed, so enraged with something. It's like this is the 5,000th time I've told you about this. And, and remembering, for example, one, uh, one family where the, uh, the mother was saying, I, I worry so much about uh, my kids and my husband because there'll be some little thing. He's maybe had a hard day at the office and comes home, and, and our boys are supposed to put the trash cans out in the, the night before the pickup, and then the next day when they get home, they're supposed to pull them back into the garage. And my husband gets home and sees that the trash cans are still standing out next to the road, and he comes in and starts lacing into these kids as though somehow that's the crime of the century, and that he's told them repeatedly, which he has, that they ought to remember to do that. And he just starts off and not just telling them about how he doesn't like that they didn't get the trash cans in, but about how they're worthless and how they're never going to amount to anything. And if they're going to act this way, uh, they're not going to be able to get a decent job. They're not going to be able to do well in school. Their life is going to be a mess. And it's, it's as though somehow he's completely forgotten that these are our kids whom he loves and wants to take care of and wants to protect and wants to nurture, and he doesn't realize how intensely he's knocking down 
their sense of themselves and spreading out his gripe from griping about the trash cans not not getting brought into the garage to attacking them as though they're worthless human beings. It's as though he's not able to keep in mind at the same time that he's feeling that frustration, the fact that this is somebody he loves and cares about and wants to protect. And later, it may occur to him, oh, gee, I was probably a little hard on him. That's the way he says it, she told me. But the fact is, she said, I worry about how that affects them over the long run. They're not easily going to forget the way in which their father has repeatedly told them that he thinks they're worthless and not going to amount to anything. Now, it's certainly true that people who don't have ADHD can lose their tempers and can shoot their mouth off and say things that they later regret. But a lot of people that I know with ADD complain that it happens to them way more than they want it to. And I think that one of the problems we're dealing with here is the difficulty that they have in being able to keep one emotion in mind while also dealing with other emotions. That while remembering the frustration, uh, it's sometimes hard for them to also keep in mind that they love the person. Or if they're dealing with a boss or a supervisor at work and they shoot their mouth off about how frustrating it is to deal with the, uh, the, the comments that the supervisor's making and not forget, remember that this is their boss and that uh, if they shoot their mouth off too much, that might have a price tag in terms of uh, what kind of review they get or whether they get to keep their job. So what I hear about a lot from people with ADD is that they often experience this business of being flooded with one emotion and have a hard time keeping in mind some of the other emotions that they also have in them about the same person, the same situation. It may be loving the kid or the spouse that one's going after, hammer and tongs, or it may be being able to keep a goal in mind. I'd like to keep my job, even though I don't like my boss very much. Next slide, please. Over the last few years, there's been more discussion about emotions as an important part of ADHD, but I think there's a problem with it. And that is that virtually all of what I've read of various researchers and clinicians writing about ADHD and emotions has been focused upon what I think of as putting on the brakes. And that is trying to uh, encourage people to be able to uh, avoid shooting their mouth off, to avoid being too quick to criticize, avoid uh, being too irritable, uh, expressing frustration too much and being able to slow that down and, and uh, put an end to it so it's, it doesn't get uh, carried over too much with too, intensity, too much intensity. But I think the other side of this that's really quite important is it's not just if we continue the automotive uh, metaphor, that it's not just learning how to put on the brakes. There are a lot of people with ADHD who have a lot of trouble getting started. Their problems are problems more with ignition that it's often difficult for them to be able to get going on a task that they know is important to them, whether it's tonight's homework or a report that somebody's got to fill out for work for tomorrow or it's uh, cleaning up some stuff that one needs to clean up, you know, that there are certain things that one needs to do and has in mind that I ought to do this because it's going to help me with this or because I'm going to have a problem with somebody if I don't or if I don't take care of it now, it's going to get worse later. 
if I don't pay this bill now, pretty soon it's going to be overdue, and then we're going to be getting calls from, from uh, bill collectors and so forth. But getting started, and that many people with ADD said, you know, I just have this way of procrastinating. It's as though I can't get started on something until it's becoming an emergency. But they tend to put things off till the last minute. And often what they'll tell you is, I'm just a person who works better under stress. But what they don't realize is that the way it works when you wait till the last minute is it puts you in a situation where you get scared. And when you get scared of something, not because somebody told you you should be scared about it, but just because it is scary to you, you think of it as something that's going to be leading to embarrassment or some penalty that you don't want to have to deal with. It changes the chemistry of the brain instantly. And so often people with ADHD report that they have a lot of trouble getting started until they get scared enough that they feel they have a gun to their head and that's the point at which they begin to be able to move and, and get started on taking some action. But unfortunately, sometimes that feeling doesn't come until after the time when they really should have gotten started on it. You know, and part of that is another issue related to memory. Next slide, please. Memory is very important in terms of understanding emotion because that's the way that the brain assesses importance and in order to assess the importance of anything, we rely upon our memories to be able to pull up relevant information about what's happened to us in the past or what we've seen movies about or what we've seen happen to other people that pulls in associated memories and gives us some picture of how things are working. But a problem that many people with ADHD is that they not only forget their feelings about somebody, but they often look at too narrow a focus. And the metaphor that I, I use for thinking about that is if you think about, suppose you're in the grandstand watching a basketball game, but you're not using both eyes to look at it. Instead, you have a telescope. And you can take your telescope and you can look up close at a particular part of what's going on on the court, but when you look through the telescope, you're only able to see one little piece of the situation. And you can move the telescope uh, and look further at what's going on down under the basket, or you can look back to see what's going on mid-court. But the problem is you're not able to keep the whole picture in mind the way you can if you're looking with both eyes and you can see the whole court. And often people with ADHD report that for them, it's when they're in a situation, whether it's a family discussion or some social interaction or something that's going on in, in school or at work, that often they have a hard time keeping in mind some of the other pieces of the situation that might matter. They may be things that are going on right at the moment, as the action in a basketball court would be during a game. Or it may be something like somebody who's just feeling they were up kind of late last night and their alarm goes off and they look at it with one eye and say, gee, I really am tired. I didn't get enough sleep last night. I'm going to uh, take a, a little longer sleep and hit the snooze alarm or maybe even turn the alarm clock off because at that moment all they're thinking about is that they're overtired and they need to get some more sleep and they're not remembering the fact that their boss had reminded them recently that they've been coming into, late, into work too late recently and that if that keeps up, it's going to be a problem on their job that ability to sort of keep in mind other aspects of the situation. 
is another place where working memory, and you see working memory is what we're talking about here. We talk about that a lot with ADHD, but it's remembering other feelings you have about something, remember other goals you have, remembering the larger context in which you're operating. Those are some of the ways that I think emotions become problematic for a lot of people with ADHD. And all of us have, these, with or without ADHD, have problems with this kind of thing sometimes, but I think for ADHD folks, it's a, it's a lot more frequent with that difficulty. So next slide, please. So what can we do about it? And of course, we have to, to begin this by saying there's nothing that we can do that's always going to help. But one of the things that a lot of people don't recognize is that they uh, they don't look enough at their conflicting emotions. Emotions often conflict. And one can love and hate somebody at the same time. You know, you may want to kill your kid, and at the same time you know you'd give anything to keep him alive. You know, you may be in a situation with your boss that, you, that you'd like to, to wish him run over by a truck, but at the same time you've got uh, a lot of concern about wanting to keep your job and be in good standing with the boss. And often we talk to people only about the parts of the feeling that we are feeling most intensely at the time, and we need help from some of our friends or other people who understand us to help take a look at how our, our emotions can conflict. Another thing is to keep our longer-term goals in mind. You know, and for example, when we're talking uh, with a, a kid about homework, uh, you don't want to talk just about how are you going to do on this or how it's going to be. You're in, the kid is in fifth grade and you're talking with them about college, but you want to look at how things are going to go in terms of what's going to happen if you keep getting these homeworks in late like this. How is that going to affect things in terms of your ability to learn it or in terms of your being able to get some reward that I promised you if you got the grades up a little bit? Another thing that's important is that uh, a lot of people take medication for ADHD, but often it's not adequately fine-tuned because there are many patients and a lot of prescribers who do not realize that the amount of medication, if we're talking about stimulant medication anyhow, which is used by most people for ADHD, uh, is that the amount you need has nothing to do with how old you are, how much you weigh, or how severe the symptoms are. It's how sensitive is your body to it. And so often the fine-tuning needs to address a person who's getting too much or too little medication is going to be a problem. If you have too little, it doesn't do a damn thing. If you might just as well be taking breath mints. If you have too much, then you're likely to be getting side effects you don't want, and it could certainly irritate, you know, cause a more irritable mood or other problems. So being able to be sure the medicine is tailored if a person's taking is important. Learning how to walk away from a situation for a few minutes when it's pushing you too much and you've got to, you want to come back when you've got a cooler head can sometimes help. We help one another in a family, hopefully, and in friendships about uh, sort of being aware of what the situations are that we're headed for, that we know there's a pretty good chance that this is going to be discouraging and we might be too tempted to give up and just walk away from it when if we stick with it a little longer, we might be able to work it out. And there are a lot of people who need some help in doing what the title of a book that's been out for many years, a little thin book, talks about getting to yes, learning to how to do strategies where you have a conversation with somebody, whether it's your child or your spouse or your other partner or somebody at work, where you try and get a sense of, okay, what is this person trying to get right now? What am I trying to get right now? Is there any way that we can solve both those problems? That these are issues that we need to be able to address if we're going to be able to function adequately with other people. 
And for folks with ADHD, I think it's particularly important. There's a lot more we have to learn about this, but these are some of the thoughts that I've been working on uh, to try to understand the role of these issues about emotions and motivation uh, in persons with ADHD. Next slide, please. If you're interested in this, you might be interested in taking a look at a, a book that uh, I've written called Smart But Stuck, Emotions in Teens and Adults with ADHD. Uh, it's just coming out. It's, now, it's out on Kindle. It's just coming out uh, this next week. Um, and if you'd like to look at a sample of it, go to my website. You can see the, uh, the URL on the screen here, and you can listen to the you can see, uh, view the introduction and the uh, which is the first chapter, and, and get at the table contents and get a sense. It's a story. I have one chapter at the beginning which talks about some of my thoughts about the issues we've been talking about just now, and then I've got 11 stories of patients that I have known pretty well. Some of them are teenagers, some of them are adults, and. Uh, what I've learned about emotions and how people with ADHD experience them. So um, that's part of what I've been working on, and I invite you to take a look at uh, the sample on the, the excerpt that's on the website and see if it's something which would be of interest to you. It doesn't cost anything to look at it online. So Karen, that, that's about all I wanted to offer in the way of remarks right now, but I'd be very happy to try to respond to questions that people might have suggested. Well, we have questions coming in. We have people who are very interested. And to those who haven't yet submitted a question, you can submit a question now uh, through the toolbar that you see there on your screen. And uh, we are taking questions. And our first question is, uh, can you discuss the relative importance of medication versus therapy in helping individuals with emotional regulation? As you know, the recommended treatment, the multimodal treatment study, has really recommended that medication and behavior management um, be used together. So can you discuss a little bit of that importance? Sure. Um, I think that, that ADHD is basically a, a developmental impairment of the brain's management system. And I think we've got a lot of evidence to say that uh, the under, an underlying factor is the dynamics of the chemistry of the brain. Now that doesn't mean that medicine works for everybody, but we've got pretty good evidence that it works for a lot of people with ADHD if it's adequately tailored to their individual body chemistry and their needs. And there are some people where if you can get the medicine right, they pretty well know what they ought to do. They just haven't been able to get themselves to do it. And so the medicine alone might be quite helpful to them in the same way that if you put a pair of glasses on somebody who can't see very well, that may help to solve a lot of their problems. But there's a lot that has to be done to fine-tune it. And there are many people where they've got problems that the medicine is not going to fix. So the first place we need to acknowledge medicine doesn't work for everybody. You know, I usually figure if we're talking about stimulants, uh, it works for about 8 out of 10 people. Now, for some people, it's huge how much it helps them. Others, it helps substantially, but not huge. Others, it helps a little, but not that much. And 2 out of 10, it doesn't do a damn thing. And the non-stimulant medications, sometimes those work where nothing else will. But not every problem comes with a solution. And so it's not as though medication is magic. And, of course, ma the medicines we have for ADD cure nothing. It's not like you have a strep throat, you take an antibiotic, and it knocks out the infection. It's more like putting on eyeglasses that help when it's in place, if you're one of the lucky 8 out of 10 for whom it works. Uh, but then when you take the glasses off, your eyes aren't fixed, and when you, your medicine wears off, uh, you still have to deal with the same things you had to deal with before you started with it. So, yes, medicine plays an important role in this for most people, but it's not effective for everybody. 
and it needs fine-tuning and monitoring in order to be able to optimize its benefits. And for many people, they need also somebody to talk with. In the cases, for example, in the book that I've just published, uh, none of those people were helped by medication alone. They all needed conversation with somebody to help them sort out the way they were looking at things and to recognize the complexity of some of the feelings they had about situations and some of the assumptions they were making that didn't make an awful lot of sense. And then for other people, they need some remedial help of one kind or another. So I think that there's not one package that works for everybody. I think medication is often effective, but not always. And that uh, it's very important to take a look at the whole picture and consider what other things might be useful for a particular person in a particular context. Thank you. I think that's a question that a lot of people have had. That one, It's one that we hear at the National Resource Center on ADHD. Well, our next question comes from a participant who is wondering, should the difficulty with emotional modulation be used as a criteria for ADHD? Should this be incorporated? We know that the uh, DSM-5 was recently revised, talking about symptoms for ADHD for children, teens, and adults. What is your thought? Should it also be, should emotional modulation also be included as one of the criteria? I think that it probably would be, but it's also important to recognize that problems with regulating emotion are characteristic of a lot of different kinds of problems. And, you know, there, for example, people who have anxiety disorders are having problems regulating particular emotions. The same thing with depressive disorders, the same thing with bipolar disorder, the same thing with OCD, the problems also with people who have uh, substance use disorders. So what, uh, what I uh, would suggest about that is, first of all, we do need an agreed-upon set of criteria for making a diagnosis. It's just a, a convention to be able to carry on conversations about these things and to count things that it's helpful to count. Uh, but I do think it would be useful for us to have some of those things added. Uh, but I would think about it as that's one part of a syndrome. ADD is not one symptom. It's a collection of symptoms that tend to show up with people who have a, a, some underlying difficulties with the impair, of impairment uh, of the management system of the brain. And the model, which I've published and written about uh, quite a bit, includes difficulties uh, with modulating emotion or modulating ref uh, affect. Uh, and I think and Russ Barkley has written some important stuff on, on the importance of, of taking this into account. So uh, I would certainly think it's a good idea for us to start uh, incorporating, to eventually work toward developing some uh, criteria about problems regulating emotion as one aspect of ADHD. But that alone would not be a basis for making or breaking a diagnosis. And you know, we all know that, that uh, many people with ADD have other problems that rise to the level of diagnosis, you know, anxiety, depression, substance use, and so forth. Um, and one needs to sort out, is this part of the syndrome of ADHD, which it is for many people. There are a lot of the people who, uh, whom I've talked to who have difficulty regulating emotions where it doesn't warrant a, a second diagnosis. It's just one aspect of the ADHD. And then there's some where it rises to the level where I'd have to say, well, you know, this really does look like it's a bipolar disorder. or This is an intensity of depression that looks like it warrants a diagnosis of dysthymia or a major depressive episode. Well, we have a participant. You just mentioned some of the possible co-occurring conditions that do walk along with ADHD for some people. One of our participants is wondering, how, can a, how does a clinician distinguish between ADHD 
and a co-occurring disorder or co-occurring mental health disorder that can impact emotion or impact motivation? That's a good question. How do you tell? Yeah, these are all good questions. Um, The way I think about it is that uh, some of the distinctions between ADHD and other disorders are quantitative and not qualitative. What I mean by that is it, uh, that there are, it goes back to the point I was just finishing on, on a minute ago, that, for example, there's some people who uh, have a lot of difficulty with worry that is pretty much a part of their daily life, and it's worrying more than most other people the same age and developmental uh, status do, uh, but it's not necessarily so much that I'd say that's generalized anxiety disorder or that's a social phobia. You know, it may be that as a person, for example, who has been embarrassed many times by things they have said or done impulsively that they recognize and make them look kind of foolish to other people. And they worry about, am I going to shoot my mouth off in the wrong way? Am I going to uh, sort of fail to pay attention and I'm going to get called on in class and not know how to respond? Or am I going to be seen as sort of a space shot? And there there are ways in which one may worry that, that don't necessarily meet the diagnostic criteria for a generalized anxiety disorder. But yet, at the same time, it's part of a syndrome. And so the, the first issue is, is it a it, having just uh, having difficulty with modulation of emotion does not certainly does not qualify for a diagnosis of ADHD, particularly under present diagnostic criteria. But if a person uh, is having difficulty with that, and it's part of the cluster of symptoms that we do associate with ADHD, then that may very well you know, be warrant they're being seen as having ADHD, particularly if they've got enough of the symptoms to meet diagnostic criteria. Uh, But then if it reaches a certain level of severity and where you draw the line on that requires a lot of clinical judgment, uh, above that line, you may need to say this is really an additional disorder. There's so much of a problem with anxiety here that uh, we need to think about this as an anxiety disorder that may warrant some additional treatment. Now, You've also got this sort of situation where often I'll see people who come in feeling depressed and may have been diagnosed as depressed by other people. Uh, but then you talk with them and they have been suffering so much with an untreated ADHD that you're looking at somebody who's got a dysthymic disorder, sort of a low-grade chronic depression. It's not life-threatening. They're not wondering if they'd be better off dead or something like that. But uh, it's just a lot of discouragement and demoralization. And what I found in a case like that is that if I can effectively treat the ADHD symptoms, sometimes those depressive symptoms clear up so that we then say, well, we were dealing with a depressive reaction, but not enough to call this a major depression because we've got the ADHD under control, and now those symptoms seem to have passed. On the other hand, if somebody comes in and their eating and sleeping are way out of control, they're preoccupied with thoughts about whether or not they want to keep on living, uh, and they're feeling constantly hopeless, they may also have ADHD, but at that point we may have a situation where this warrants a diagnosis of a major depressive episode, and that needs to be treated. And then the clinician, of course, has to make a decision about uh, which is the most important and most urgent. And in that case, I would probably want to go for treating the depression first 
and then uh, come in with the uh, treatment for ADHD subsequent to that once we've got some of those major symptoms uh, under control. Well, you mentioned the major symptoms and, and concern, uh, concerns for someone, as you said, maybe eating or sleeping themselves out of control who may have uh, be experiencing lack of motivation and so forth. We have a participant who is wondering how is self-esteem affected by ADHD? Does the emotional and motivation deficits affect self-esteem, lower self-esteem? And we know that sometimes uh, depression and self-esteem can be intertwined. Certainly both oh, sure. are affected. Oh, sure, and so can ADHD. Uh, you know, self-esteem is one of, the, one of the major casualties for people who have untreated ADHD because it tends to make people feel stupid and incompetent when they're not that there are so many times that are embarrassing to them and frustrating to them uh, where they're not able to do things that they expect themselves to do and that other people expect them to do. And uh, it really does affect the, the way they think about themselves in a very profound way that's very hard to shake off and is not going to be eradicated simply because somebody says, oh, I think you're a good person or I know you're really smart even though you keep failing in these tests you're taking. And are getting lousy grades in school, or, yeah, I know you've lost several jobs because you couldn't get there on time and you uh, weren't consistent in doing things, but I know you're really a smart person. But, you know, we don't go just by what people tell us directly about whether or not we're any good. We, we've got some sense of what's expected and how what we're doing fits with what other people are able to do around us. So self-esteem is a major casualty in untreated ADHD, and it's one of the reasons why I think it's important to get at the problem early. If you've got somebody who really does have significant ADHD impairments, I think it's very important for them to get an adequate diagnostic workup and get some help if, in fact, they do meet diagnostic criteria uh, for the treatment of that problem, because otherwise one of the important problems that comes from it is that you end up feeling that you're just no damn good. Uh, and you tend to internalize uh, the picture of yourself that gets handed to you every time uh, you see that you've messed up one more time. And, you know, if you're lucky, you may have some other things that go well enough that other people uh, can genuinely tell you, yeah, nice guy, nice job, you did a good job on that. And that's why some, some people can, you know, find support in being good at athletics or they're good at art or they're very good at, at fixing computers or at uh, repairing cars or uh, they've got some special skills that can help the, them to be able to feel proud of themselves in, in at least some contexts. But uh, I think that anybody who knows anybody with ADHD who has had a long period of not being adequately treated certainly understands that one of the big problems that that person faces is a a very shaky sense of their own value. Often that may be covered up by braggadocio or by uh, sort of making fantastic claims that uh, just don't hold much water. But underneath, often, there's a, a lot of discouragement and, and uh, hopelessness. Well, we have heard from people who have uh, dealt with both the discouragement and the hopelessness, and we've also heard from people who have found a good treatment plan and, and found some ways in life to make this a very positive experience. Absolutely. We have a Absolutely. I mean, this is uh, of the things to deal with. There are ways to deal with ADHD. That's right. We have a question now from a participant who, uh, following along these lines, 
I was wondering if ADHD-related emotional dysregulation is an executive function, and can it be treated by the stimulant medication or being a mood issue or being something such as depress depression, as you mentioned a moment ago, would it be better treated by an antidepressant? Now, I realize that this is a medical question that, of course, a person always needs to come to their treatment plan working closely with their doctor, but speaking yeah, generally... Yeah, I hope they've got a doctor who understands this kind of stuff, but... Um, I think that, that it certainly it needs to be t taken into account. First of all, the, uh, the question about is it an executive function, I think so. Uh, uh, the model of ADHD, which is described on my website that I've uh, been working with for about 20 years now, has as one of its components, and when I've got that list of executive functions, one of them is uh, the, problem, the capacity of a person, the function that they have, uh, to be able to manage frustration and to modulate emotion. And so that's one of the places where uh, emotion is a critically important aspect, I think, of, uh, of ADHD. But what I'm talking about today is not simply that modulating emotions and managing frustration. I'm also talking about the role emotion plays in being able to get activated and get started on things and the role it plays in being able to sustain alertness and to be able to keep up the effort to finish things. So it, it's, emotion is a part of all the executive functions that are described in the model that I'm working with. And I think that it's, it's important to take that into account as one of the basic building blocks of the brain's management system. Now the question about which end to pick up if you've got somebody who has the syndrome of ADHD and at the same time as having a lot of trouble with depression or a lot of trouble with anxiety, uh, is you need to take a look at it. What's the effect of medication on it? There are some people, if you put them, for example, on stimulant medications, if they've got a particularly body, sensitive body chemistry, uh, that medicine can make them more jittery and more anxious. There are some other people, you can put them on exactly the same stimulant medication, and you know they'll feel much more calm. I've had some people who've been on almost every one of the anti-anxiety medications whom we've, who've been put on stimulant medications for the first time, and they'll come back and say, you know, I feel more calm than I've ever felt in my life, even on all those other medications. Because part of what we're talking about here is the capacity of the brain to impose top-down regulation on bottom-up emotions. And that's one of the things that the medication can help. Sometimes the stimulants are not the best medicines for dealing with this, and sometimes you are, you are better off with uh, other medicines. depends on which symptoms are making the most trouble. Generally, the stimulants and the other FDA-approved non-stimulant medications are the best tools we've got for dealing with ADHD. For example, some of the non-stimulants that we've got available now can be very helpful with excessive irritability, and I've had people who've been on mood stabilizers in antipsychotic medicines uh, who have found that they weren't very helpful to them, but they did find that they got quite a bit of benefit when they got uh, some help with uh, some of these non a couple of these non-stimulants that are particularly useful for being able to sort of calm that aspect of brain and put a little more management on it. Sometimes the stimulants work for it, but those are clinical judgments that really require consulting with somebody who knows what ADHD know looks like, who knows what these other disorders look like and has some experience in being able to see how you can tailor uh, a treatment program to include appropriate therapy, whether it's cognitive behavioral or, or psychotherapy, uh, 
or a group or a group of family therapy and or medications that will target one or another because these are different chemical systems that regulate these things. And sometimes the ADD medicines, the ones that are approved specifically for ADHD, are very helpful in dealing with uh, in improving the capacity to modulate emotion. Sometimes they need to be augmented by some additional medication. For example, it's not at all unusual if you've got somebody with a severe ADHD and OCD to need one medicine to deal with the ADHD and a second medicine to deal with the OCD because those are two different uh, neurotransmitter systems that are involved in it. But you need somebody who, who can uh, do a careful workup, ask the questions, listen carefully to the answers, and have a sense of uh, which things are likely to work best, and also to approach it with the idea that a lot of this is something where you just have to sort of work by trial and error. You make your best guess about what's going to be helpful to this person, see how it works, monitor it carefully, and then if that doesn't work, you try something else. Thank you. Uh, when we're talking about um, trying something else and and so forth, we've got a question now from a parent, and our parent was wondering if children who are considered to be twice exceptional, these are the ones who have both ADHD and um, maybe dealing with a different learning disability or, or another problem, are twice exceptional gifted children equally challenged when it comes to um, emotion and motivation? Is this a continuing problem for them also? Sure. Uh, yeah, not not everybody. My specialty is uh, dealing with uh, uh, people with ADHD who also are high IQ. And one of the reasons I got interested in this is that I find that the people who are exceptionally bright often have a much harder time in being able to get adequate assessment and treatment in a timely way. Because often a lot of teachers and parents and clinicians assume that if you're really smart, you can't really have ADHD. And they don't understand that having ADHD has nothing to do with how smart you are, that there are some people who have ADHD who are super, super, super smart, others high average, others middle average, and some have trouble doing the basics. But you can be any place on the IQ spectrum and still have ADHD. And this particular aspect that we're talking about today, the, the issues around motivation and the issues around managing emotion and responding constructively to emotion are issues which are very much a problem for many of the high IQ folks I see, just as they are for other people as well. And in some ways, uh, sometimes the uh, so-called twice exceptional, somebody who may be super smart and also has ADHD, persons in a a situation that's particularly difficult because many of them get isolated very early on in their education and don't and some have a lot of difficulty with social anxiety where they get excessively preoccupied with worries about how their people are doing and there are also some who have some of the characteristics of what we would used to used to re refer to more as Asperger's or uh, the high IQ end of, of the autistic spectrum where they're really pretty clueless in terms of understanding social interactions and uh, sometimes they are so rational that they want to approach everything on a very cognitive, intellectualized basis and haven't really developed some of those skills that are involved in sort of having empathy for other people, sizing up how the world looks really different to some other people, and uh, being able to take adequate account of the different situations in which they find themselves. 
And a lot of the uh, uh, kids and, and young adults and adults that I see who are high IQ end up coming into the office because uh, they are concerned not simply with their academic functioning, but because they've been so frustrated in their dealings with other people. You know, they often uh, annoy other people or disappoint other people. Or, and you know, you'll see in the stories that I published in that book that just came out, there's several of them. There's one of them in particular of a, a student who said, I'm in Mensa, <laughs> you know, and uh, I don't think I'm going to be able to graduate from college. What's the use? And part of the problem was that he had gotten involved in smoking way too much marijuana uh, to deal with some underlying anxiety problems. Uh, and so he was too baked to get himself to class some of the time. But there, he also was running into difficulties where he was not taking enough into account uh, how his teachers were feeling about how he was coming across to them and how he was dealing uh, with other people who were, uh, you know, in his classes or that he had to work with in, in his training and internship sessions. So, um, you know, the, being smart does not protect you from having ADHD and it does not protect you from having emotional difficulties. And what happens to some of these people who are really bright, super bright folks, is that they get socially isolated and often kind of depressed about uh, there are difficulties in being able to deal with other people. Now, that's not to say all of them. There, there are some who have a wonderful ability to get along with other folks. They have a great sense of humor and are very empathic, but there also are some who really do struggle with these uh, social-emotional problems and need some help to deal with that. And it's not the sort of thing which is going to fix by just by giving people some medicine. That's where it's very important for to have somebody to talk with them who can sort of get an appreciation for how the world looks to them and help them develop a little more appreciation for how it looks to other people. And the world can look very different when you are coping with the symptoms of ADHD. And that's it sure one can. Of the leading sources. Oh, yes. It's a leading source of frustration. I know for many of our participants and for many of the people who contact us at the National Resource Center on ADHD. Well, our last question, and this uh, is a one that I'm hoping that... Uh, you can address is we have a participant who is wondering if there is a type of certification program or something that someone can look for when they're looking for a clinician to help them with ADHD with emotional regulation what is the type of question what is the type of certification they should be looking for or asking I don't think there is any certification that I'm aware of that uh, helps to identify people who can do this well because we're talking about uh, something that involves some cognitive skills and academic training to appreciate the you know what's going on in the brain with this kind of thing and, and also social psychological stuff and how to understand the impact of uh, family life and uh, social systems of various kinds that people participate in but we're also talking about what kind of the, the personality and the individual chemistry of the individual involved and I think that uh, you know, you can't rely on, you know, saying, oh, if you've got somebody who's got a Ph.D. in psychology or if you've got somebody who's got an M.D. in residency in psychiatry or somebody who's an APRN who's got a special interest in ADHD or somebody who's a, uh, a licensed uh, clinical social worker, there are some people in every one of those fields who are excellent at dealing with this sort of thing. And there are some others who may have the academic training and may have passed the licensing requirements 
who have a lot of difficulty in being able to help people address these issues because they don't have them fully resolved in their own life and they don't have sufficient appreciation of how many ways there are to live a life and how uh, the, the world looks so different to, to other people sometimes. And as a result, they often either try to manage too much or back off and offer too little to the other person. So I think that you're really stuck with just asking around. Um, you know, you can go like to the Chad list of the professional resource uh, list about people who make themselves available as people who specialize in ADHD. Uh, you can talk with a local Chad group leaders and uh, find out who other families in the uh, which clinicians in the neighborhood or in reasonable travel distance are uh, likely to, to be helpful for certain kinds of things. And there are some people who are very good with one kind of patient and not so hot with another. So I think it's important to have somebody who's got a pretty solid grounding in understanding uh, what ADHD is in, in its modern you know, understanding as, as it's you know, been changed and evolved a lot over the past few years, and who's not stuck in just thinking these are just behavioral problems. But you also want somebody who's got some breadth of experience and has the personality to be able to work with them. And one person may be able to work with one person and not somebody else. And so then what you do is you, you try and get some names and then you try and audition a couple of people. And if you, if you get to somebody where it feels like it's just not working, you tell them what the problem seems to be, see if they can help to deal with it. And if that's not working, then you have to look a little further. Uh, honestly, it is not easy to get a good clinician. You know, just like good teachers, there, there are a number of them out there, but uh, it's hard to find somebody and also to find, you know, just like there's one teacher who can be really great for some students and not for others. Uh, but we're looking not just at sort of academic qualities or training experiences, but also about the, just the personality and the nature of, of this particular person, whether they can work well with this other particular person who happens to be coming in looking for some help. Thank you. I think this is a question that many people have. It's one that we certainly hear pretty frequently. It's how to find a good clinician. And what you said a moment ago about auditioning clinicians, auditioning doctors, we do suggest ask some questions and make the appointment if you like the answers. Always take a look. You want someone who is a good fit for you. Well, doctor, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. I think this has been a great experience for our audience. We're very pleased to have been able to host you. Thank you, Doctor, again. Thank you to our participants. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes so we can continue to bring great content to you. adults the fastest growing population to be diagnosed with ADHD? Is there such a thing as adult onset ADHD? Get answers to your questions at www.helpforadhd.org. That's www.help and the number 4 ADHD.org.